Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello, I'm in conversation today with Charles Gant, who's the director of the Center for European Reform. And we're here to talk about Prime Minister Theresa May's emerging Brexit deal. Charles has a better idea than most, I think, where negotiations on Brexit are going to go. And that's partly because he is in close contact, not just with the senior decision makers in the UK, but also all over Europe. So, Charles, the first question to perhaps set the scene a little bit, when you go to Brussels and you speak to EU officials, would you say that they are optimistic about the deal that Theresa May will be able to negotiate? Will she be able to implement her plan to leave the single market in the customs union and get a free trade arrangement? Many of the officials I talk to in Brussels and in other European capitals are quite gloomy about the prospect of Mrs May getting the deal she wants, namely an Article 50 divorce settlement in two years, followed by a free trade agreement with some sort of transitional mechanism leading to that free trade agreement. They're gloomy because they worry about the ability of the British government to understand what is at stake, to understand how weak its cards are in some respects, to understand the legal, technical, financial complexities involved. They see comments from British ministers and senior politicians in London that are very sort of gung-ho and optimistic and enthusiastic, saying, we can go for it, we're determined, we've got political will, we're clever, we can, we can get a good deal because our partners wouldn't dare to give us a bad deal because it would hurt their economies. So there's a, there's a sort of insouciance in London that perturbs senior Brussels inf officials. They worry that the British will be overconfident and overplay their hand. And there's a second worry they have, which is they see the, the venomous and sometimes aggressive nature of the Eurosceptic media and some of the very right-wing Eurosceptic politicians, and they worry that the pressure for a very hard Brexit and in the negotiating uh, period, a very tough negotiating stance, will prevent Mrs May from making the compromises necessary in order to strike a d good deal. For example, will she be able to compromise on the 60 billion euros, roughly, that our EU partners will demand of the British. We also be able to compromise on the transitional arrangements leading to a free trade agreement, which may require the UK to accept some role for the European Court of Justice for a transitional period, for example. And they worry, our partners, that the press will be so aggressive and so strident that Mrs May and her ministers will cower in the face of a Eurosceptic press onslaught and simply not find the courage to strike the compromises necessary for a good deal. That is the worry shared by many of our partners and by senior Brussels officials. And in your view, is there a sort of counterbalance to those venomous Eurosceptic voices, civil society engagement? Is there an opposition party? Is there business, perhaps business interests that are lobbying for a softer stance? Well, certainly those who would like a soft Brexit as opposed to a hard Brexit are much less vocal, less strident, they do exist, they're probably getting their act together a bit. Certainly, business leaders are rather more concerned than they were. Now they've realized Brexit's gonna be quite hard. We're seeing people from Nissan, for example, speak out, saying they'll have to review their investments in Britain if, if the end deal doesn't suit their businesses in Sunderland and elsewhere. Um, so I think more pressure from business is cranking up, but of course, businesses are traditionally very reluctant to criticize governments. It goes against the grain, particularly for British businesses. You do see a role played by Parliament. Uh, we've seen in recent days the House of Lords passing amendments to the government's Brexit bill in favour of 
allowing EU citizens to stay in the UK after Brexit. And probably the government can overturn those amendments. But nevertheless, the government does have to consider Parliament as a factor now. And it has conceded the principle of a parliamentary vote on the final deal probably in the autumn of 2018. So that is a, a factor influencing the government, because Parliament is basically for a soft Brexit, softer than it looks like we're going to get. Um, you perhaps see some pressure from the Scottish, uh, the Scottish government, because Scotland obviously didn't want to leave the EU in the first place. The Scottish National Party is now talking about having a referendum. They may or they may not go for it, a second referendum on independence. But the harder Brexit is, the more likely the Scottish are to go for independence because the easier it will be for Nicola Sturgeon to persuade the Scottish people that hanging around with the English is bad for the Scottish economy and Scotland should break free and rejoin the EU. So none of these uh, factors is, is absolutely uh, central uh, or as powerful perhaps as the Eurosceptic lobbying on the other side. But I would just say a final factor is simply ministers are learning and learning and learning. They're going home at night and reading briefing notes prepared by their officials. So some of the ministers, including the Eurosceptical David Davis, the Brexit secretary, are becoming more expert all the time. And that perhaps is a, a one factor militating in favour of a softer Brexit. Interesting. Um, you've perfectly set the scene for the next question, which is that over the last weeks and months, we've learned more about the content of Theresa May's Brexit strategy but we've also learned more about the process, and you've spoken in the past about the centralization that is happening in number 10, the centralization of decision-making in Theresa May's government. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, this is one of the worries that our partners have about Britain and its ability to handle the Brexit talks. It is the decision-making process in number 10, and it's a worry shared, I have to say, by some senior British officials who are not in number 10, but in other parts of the government. Uh, Mrs. May's way of running the country, compared to that of David Cameron or certainly Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, not so clear, is more centralizing. It's, it's more keeping everything very closely under the control of her and her closest advisors. And their critics would say that Mrs. May and her closest advisors are not great experts on the European Union or international relations or economics or the business world or financial markets. Although there are, of course, some people in number 10 who do know about those things. And I guess there's a, there's a worry that because of a fairly small group of people taking decisions, that some of those people won't simply know enough about the issues involved and will therefore end up taking decisions that may be quite costly, that simply nobody knew. For one little example, Britain is leaving Euratom, the European Atomic Energy Community. Uh, it didn't really have to leave Euratom because uh, nobody voted to leave the EU because they wanted to get out of Euratom. This is creating massive problems for energy companies like Electricité de France, which is building nuclear power stations in Britain. It's going to create an enormous amount of extra bureaucracy and problems for all those involved in nuclear fuel shipments and nuclear safety. And I think if only the people who took that decision had actually known some of the facts and figures and arguments first, they probably would have decided not to leave Euratom. But perhaps those taking the decision just didn't know enough about it. Um, I'm going to try something a little bit different now, which is that I'm going to list four Brexit cards, four UK assets, and I'm going to ask you to put them into order of relevance, importance and usefulness in the Brexit negotiations. So first, the City of London. Second, the Freedom of the UK to lower taxes significantly post-Brexit. 
Three, the special relationship between the UK and the United States. And four, the British Armed Forces and Intelligence Services. Right. Well, of those four cards, I would say the only one that is a real card that may help the British to some degree is the fact that Britain contributes quite a lot to European security uh, via its seat on the UN Security Council, its preeminent role in NATO, its strong armed forces, good diplomats, effective spies, expertise on counterterrorism, and very good policemen. Uh, that is a real trump card, but if played the wrong way, um, could be counterproductive. If the British were so crass as to say, as one or two politicians have said, look to the Poles and the Baltic countries, look, we, we've sent a 1,000 troops to defend you recently, a 1,000 extra British soldiers in the Baltic and Polish regions. Um, therefore, you should give us a good free trade agreement, okay? That kind of threat to implicitly withdraw security uh, cooperation if we don't get a good trade agreement doesn't go down well. And Mrs. May, to her credit, has not been so crass as that. In her Lancaster House speech, she did talk about our contribution to European security, Britain's contribution, but didn't try and extract a price for it, which was the right approach. So played subtly, this card simply is, is, is as following. You know, we help, we help to contribute to European security. We hope this creates a bit of goodwill, okay? And you, you leave it at that. And I think if played subtly, then this is a, 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 a moderate card in Britain's favor. But l closely linked to that is the, the Trump card, as it were, the, the Trump of Donald Trump card. And that has probably more potential to damage Britain than to help Britain. It could help Britain a little bit because our partners are traumatized by the arrival of Trump and perhaps his diminishing commitment to European security and certainly his diminishing commitment to the global free trading order. Therefore, the fact that Britain, despite leaving the EU, is still committed to European security, still believes in rules-based international trade, is important for our partners, and it may make them feel they should be quite close to us and uh, be nice to us and have friendly relations with us. So it could work the right way, the Trump card, in the positive way for Britain, but it could easily work the wrong way, and it probably in some ways it is working the wrong way, because the more the British government is seen to uh, fawn on Donald Trump's administration, to kowtow to it, to be sycophantic towards it. And some statements by some British ministers have been rather in that direction. The more it alienates our partners, the more it makes them think, these Brits don't share our values, they're different, they're more like Trump than Europeans. And that will not uh, promote goodwill towards Britain. And goodwill is what we need to get a good deal. So the Trump card may not help us very much at all. Uh, as for the other cards you mentioned, one was the City of London. Uh, in an ideal, uh, rationally, economically thinking world, that would be a bit of a card because the city provides rail services to the continent of Europe in terms of capital markets, advice on financial matters, hedging, insurance, fund management, and so on. Uh, it does do some good to the whole European economy, but we shouldn't think, therefore, they're going to give a good deal that allows the city to, con to continue its, its eminent role at the moment. The truth is the British will lose so-called passporting, which allows city firms regulated by the UK to operate all across the EU, because that's part of the single market, and Britain wants to leave the single market. So um, we shouldn't expect any favours, because many other countries, despite the benefits they get from the city, many other EU countries regard the city as a source of wicked Anglo-Saxon financial capitalism, as a hotbed of the kind of nefarious practices that brought about the financial crisis. So they, there's a lot of hostility to the city and the, the excessive salaries going to bond traders and so on. And at the same time, there's a desire to steal its business. They don't like it particularly. 
but certainly Paris, Frankfurt, Madrid, Milan, Dublin, uh, Amsterdam, and other cities are all hoping to pick up bits of city business if the city is clobbered by the Brexit settlement. So I don't think uh, that's much of a card. And the British may say, if, if you give the city a bad deal, it'll destabilize the Eurozone. But because it's in a grotesque exaggeration, that doesn't cut much ice with most of our parts. So I don't think that is much of a card either. What was the other card? The idea of an ultra-liberal tax haven, Britain. Oh, this is a very counterproductive card. This was, of course, the point of Mrs. May's speech, where she said, if you don't give us a good deal, we'll walk away and we'll adopt a new economic model of low tax, low regulations, attract lots of investment, and then you'll be sorry. The trouble with threats is you shouldn't make them unless they're credible. And given that Mrs. May is not an ultra-liberal, ultra-Thatcherite, deregulatory Tory on the right of the party economically, she's not that kind of Tory at all. She's actually a very moderate, almost social democratic Tory who believes in less uh, unequal pay structures, who wants worker directors, who talks about industrial strategy. In economic terms, she's quite a left-wing Tory. So the threat to establish Singapore doesn't really carry much weight, I think, that much credibility in the eyes of most of our partners. And of course, it, threatening people is never very nice, and it undid some of the goodwill of the rest of the speech, which was pretty soft and pretty benign for our partners. Um, and they're preparing a response. They will now write into the FTA that the British negotiates with the EU, the British negotiate with you. They'll write in provisions so that if the British try and undercut uh, European partners by having a kind of cutting regulations to attract investment. There'll be a way of punishing us by restricting market access or something. They're working on it. I, won't, I don't know what they'll decide, but I've heard from EU officials it's a big priority for them to find ways of preventing the British skewing the playing field in their favour. We know a bit more about what Mrs May and her government want to achieve in Brexit negotiations. What are the known unknowns at the moment? What are the things that w you expect will be revealed over the next months? Where do you see the next puzzle pieces falling? Well, we do know that Mrs. May wants to leave the single market in the customs union. We don't know what restrictions she will impose on migration yet, though we know there'll be some restrictions. Uh, we don't know what sort of judicial or court mechanisms she may uh, want or ask for to adjudicate in disputes between Britain and the EU. And the other th thing is the transitional arrangements, uh, very important. If Britain's gonna jump from being an EU member towards an FTA, which will take many years to negotiate, there needs to be some sort of transitional arrangements covering that period where perhaps we stay in parts of the single market, perhaps we stay in the customs union for a limited period. The trouble with that is that our partners may well say, okay, if you want the transitional deal, fine, but if you're in parts of the single market, that means you pay into our budget, you accept free movement of labor, and you have to accept the European Court of Justice. So that could be very, very difficult. I suspect the transitional arrangements will be the most difficult bit of the whole negotiation. I mentioned the Court of Justice, that's another difficult bit, because in many of the areas where we'll be negotiating, our part Britain's partners will say, if you want to be very close to us or in something like the single market, you will have to accept that the European Court of Justice will be the dispute settlement body in areas like aviation, for example, where at the moment countries in the European travel area like Switzerland and Norway, which are not in the EU, accept a European court playing a role in aviation or in checking whether data flows can go from the UK to the EU and back. Again, the EU will insist that 
that the data privacy rules be supervised by the European Court of Justice, or equivalents for financial firms. Will Britain's financial rules be deemed equivalent to those of the EU, allowing British firms to operate in the EU? Well, who's going to check if there's a dispute? The EU, again, will say the European Court of Justice. In a whole load of areas, the EU will insist on this. And Mrs May's been quite categorical in ruling out a role for the European Court of Justice. So this is a, actually quite a, an issue. Finally, on migration, we don't know what Mrs May will decide yet, but it looks like it'll take many years to introduce the new rules because there isn't the infrastructure in place to check who is living in the country and who's an EU citizen and who isn't. And the pressure from business to not have too strict rules, particularly for skilled labour and certain other sectors like farm workers and healthcare workers, is very strict. So I suspect... In the end, these new rules will be less strict on skilled workers than others, less strict on EU citizens than others, and hopefully not so strict that the economy grinds to a halt as a result of lack of labour. Right. You've identified the risks and the difficulties that you see ahead, and in many ways I think the recommendations on what to do and what not to do have been implicit in that, but could I just ask you to spell out your top three recommendations for both sides as negotiations on Brexit? Go ahead. Well, starting with the British, um, the most important thing for the British to do is to get the tone right. They've got to be diplomatic. Being diplomatic means being polite, courteous, sober and modest, not banging the table, not shouting, not being histrionic, not slamming the door and walking out. That's not how diplomacy works. And my basic view is that the British are in quite a weak position. It doesn't mean they can't get an, uh, an acceptable deal. But because once Article 50 is activated, the clock is ticking. And once the clock starts ticking, the time pressure is on the British to come to a deal. And if there's no deal, then they would leave without an Article 50 settlement, which would be disastrous for their economy, and the financial markets would spiral out of control. So the pressure's on the British. They are in a weak position. Therefore, they need goodwill. To get goodwill, be, be sober, be courteous, as I've already said. Also, I would say consult. The British government does need to consult a wider circle of experts. As I've said, there is perhaps too narrow a group of people taking the key decisions on Brexit. Most of them are Home Office people. Nothing wrong with the Home Office, but the Home Office doesn't know a lot about economics or business or finance. So broaden the circle, bring in some retired ambassadors to the EU who have fantastic negotiating experience and expertise, bring in people who really know how the EU countries think and why they think what they think, uh, bring in a wider circle of expertise, and then finally, don't ask for things that uh, will provoke or annoy your partners. And Mrs May's made a fairly good start. She hasn't asked to stay in the single market and restrict free movement. That is sensible. That was adult of us. Some of, them, some of our partners feared she would say, we want to stay in the market and we want to restrict immigration. She hasn't done that. But still, if she comes up for, with relatively modest restrictions on free movement of people, for example, if she goes for moder moderate and modest agreements in other areas, particularly if she goes for a very constructive relationship on security cooperation, suggest mechanisms whereby we could, without being members of the EU, feed our thoughts in, feed our expertise in, that would create goodwill as well. So for the British side, I'd say be sober, consult widely, and be constructive in your proposals. On the European side, I would say don't be aggressive. You have your, the European countries have their interests and their priorities, which the British need to understand. The Europeans do have to make sure that their own autonomy and the strength of their institutions is preserved without, without giving the British special deals that undermine the European institutions. But some of these negotiations will be difficult for the British, in particular on financial affairs. If the EU says to the British, 
unless you pay 60 billion euros up front, we won't talk about a free trade agreement. That would not be helpful. That would lead to a crash in the talks. So the EU's got to understand that politically the British are in a difficult position. It's their fault, of course, for voting to leave the EU, but they mustn't try and humiliate us. And on the money question, they must be certainly favourable to creative accounting so that the EU gets its money, but the British newspapers do not scream, Britain hands over 30 billion euros to the EU. If this can be presented as contributions to fund for the development of poorer countries in Eastern Europe or contributions to ensure good access to the single market, that would be good uh, politically, and our partners should encourage the British to do that. So the, the, our partners should not humiliate us. They should be patient with the British. And ultimately, I suppose, a lot will depend on the leading member states of the EU, particularly France and Germany. The Germans and the French at the moment are understandably taking quite a hard line on the British, but ultimately the EU's got enough problems on its plate without the British falling out with a crash. So if the French and the Germans can encourage others to support a constructive settlement with the British, that would be highly desirable for everybody. And I do expect the Germans, whoever the cha next chance of Germany is, to play a, in a very central role in the negotiations. Charles Grant, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.